As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Me being the person I was, I'm like, you know what? I have Google, I have the internet. So I decided to Google my dad's name. All this weird stuff came up and I was just like, I don't know what this is, this isn't even my dad. So I got more creative with it. I just kept adding these words to the search engine until I finally came up with something that sounded like my dad. And that's when I really found out what happened to him. I was just shocked. I couldn't believe it. I wanted answers and nobody could give me the answers. Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter and happy New Year's. Happy 2023 to all. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you had a rambunctious 31st December, or maybe you're, you know, just took it easy at home and weren't hungover on the first, unlike uh, Alexis and I, but it's a new year. We're doing big things. Everybody is. Everybody is. And we've got a lot to be excited about and a lot to live for in 2023. There you go. And we have a lot of uh, fun stuff coming up for the first degree. So keep your eyes peeled. A lot more video content, some fun guests coming up, uh, and it's going to be a good year. Brace yourselves. So uh, it is July. Wow. It's Mm -hmm. January 4th. (laughs) I was getting ahead of myself. Uh, National Spaghetti Day. That's a good one. National Trivia Day. I suck at trivia. How are you at trivia? Very good. Are you? Because I know useless things. General trivia. Like Jeopardy trivia you're good at. Yeah. I can't do a basic math problem though. (laughs) Do you remember when you guys tried to have me do just any long division and it was just not for me? No, I've completely forgotten, but we don't need to know that. It's also World Hypnotism Day. And uh, when I was younger, I thought I could hypnotize people. It was really, I thought that I had special powers. Well, it's nice that you believe that. It's okay to live in a world of delusion sometimes. That's right. The the dark magic uh, lived inside of me for a while. All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. It's likely that at one point in your life, you'll know someone who's been incarcerated. After all, the United States has the highest rate of incarceration when compared to anywhere else in the world. But there's a percentage of incarcerated people who are fighting a separate battle beyond getting adjusted to the politics of prison life. That's because a percentage of people behind bars are innocent. So reality begs the question, what happens when you didn't do the crime you're doing the time for? What happens when the system is stacked against you? We're about to dive deep into an extraordinary, heartbreaking, and multi-layered story about an ongoing fight for justice and its lifelong intergenerational impact. It's a stark reminder that despite outward appearances in the media of the so-called seemingly happy and idealistic endings that come with exonerations, these aren't always fair or just. 
So we begin today's case on Thanksgiving Day, November 26 of 1981. President Ronald Reagan was in the Oval Office while Tina Turner was celebrating her 42nd birthday. On the top of the Billboard charts, physical by the now late and great Olivia Newton-John was in the number one spot, followed by Foreigners Waiting for a Girl Like You and Privatized by Hall and & Oates. And at the movies, James Cagney made his final film appearance in the historical drama Ragtime, while Paul Newman and Sally Field starred in the neo-noir thriller Absence of Malice. Richard Simmons was at the top of the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list with his book, Never Say Diet. I mean, it's probably not great. And in the gaming scene, maze and platform formats were all the rage. Uh, Pac-Man was killing it. It was the highest grossing video game for the second year in a row, while Nintendo and Sega were both ranking in the bucks with the releases of Donkey Kong and Frogger. Wow, wow, wow. Good times for mm. pop culture. The setting for today's story is the Windy City of Chicago, Illinois. Chicago is situated in northeast Illinois on the southwest shores of Lake Michigan. The metropolis boomed during the mid-19th century, driven by the thriving construction industry. Known for its legendary deep-dish pizza, distinctive architecture, and even the subject of a hit Broadway musical, Chicago is home to notorious mobster Al Capone's organized crime syndicate and is where public enemy number one, John Dillinger, met his demise in 1934. And our first degree for today's case is named Lily. Lily was born in Chicago, but her parents originally met in Mexico. At the time, her dad, Joaquin, had American citizenship and was living between the two countries going back and forth, but eventually Lily's mom joined him in the U.S. He met my mom around 94. He met my mom in Mexico. They did the long distance for four years. My dad crossed over with my mother because she was undocumented at the time. Then they came here. They had my older sister, who was born in 97. Growing up, Lily had what she considered to be a pretty normal childhood. She was very close to her dad, who she loved more than anything. But along the way, Lily realized something was missing within their relationship. It was hard for her to put her finger on, but she described the relationship as lacking some emotional availability. But Lily didn't really question it because it's all she knew. I have always been super close to my dad. Me and my dad have always been like, I'm his right hand, he's my right hand. We're just a bond that's unbreakable. He wasn't your typical dad. He provided, he took care of us, but he wasn't emotionally there. There was always something missing and we always wondered. I grew up watching my cousins or like my friends with their fathers and it was just a different relationship from what I had. As a child, Lily came to understand that her dad had either been in prison at some point or had some sort of criminal record, but the whole family was kind of in the dark about all of the details. It was this huge mystery in their family, and it was a topic that Lily and her sister knew was completely off limits. There were no exceptions to that rule. They also couldn't talk to their mom about it because despite meeting her husband after everything happened, she didn't really know the details either. Lily's dad was an absolute closed book as far as his past was concerned. We're Mexican, and in our culture, a lot of Mexicans, they just brush things under the rug, and they don't like to talk about their feelings. My mom married him not knowing about him. She found out when she was pregnant with me, but nobody explained it to her. My dad was very, didn't want to talk about it, so my mom just kind of never knew the reality of it. She just knew he went to prison, and she was just going based off of what people would tell her, and people would just say, like, well, if he was in there, he must have done something bad. No one really knew, like, the truth. So my mom kind of knew it, but didn't. But because my mom lacked that education and that like concept of knowing how the system works and how everything in America works, she just was under that impression that if you're in prison, you're in there because you did something and it was bad. 
As the years passed, Lily's parents grew further and further apart. They weren't getting along, and family violence sadly became part of the home environment, which Lily's mom was adamant she wasn't going to expose her daughters to. Eventually, Lily's mom took her girls and moved out to Joliet, which is on the outskirts of Chicago, where Lily still lives today. Her mom raised the kids as a single parent, and Lily didn't have much contact with her dad throughout her teen years. My father was very violent for a lot of years. That's when my mom ultimately decided, I need to leave. I can't keep doing this to my children. So my mom left, and that's when we didn't talk to him for like 10 years. I was 11 or 12, and my older sister had to be 12 or 13, and my younger sister was two. So we really didn't hear from him. We didn't have a relationship with him. We never heard from him after we left. He didn't reach out. My mom didn't reach out to him. We just kind of acted like strangers in the same city. But it was hard because I didn't have contact with any of his family anymore, and I was very close to his family. It was just really hard times. When Lily was around 15 years old, she decided to finally act on this curiosity about her father that she'd been harboring all of these years. She wanted to know why he'd been in prison all of those years ago. And beyond that, she wanted answers about why her family and the relationship with her dad fell apart as well. So she took to the internet for answers and started Googling. And boom, the truth revealed itself in the most confronting of ways. Right. And suddenly everything crystallized. Lily understood exactly why her dad was the way he was. When I turned 15, I remember I just wanted my dad back. I wanted to know more about him. I had heard about this case, but nobody ever really sat down and talked to me about the reality of it and what really happened. Everyone just told me your dad did something really bad and had to pay for it. Me being the person I was, I'm like, you know what? I have Google. I have the internet. So I decided to Google my dad's name. All this weird stuff came up and I was just like, I don't know what this is. This isn't even my dad. So I got more creative with it. I just kept adding these words to the search engine until I finally came up with something that sounded like my dad. And that's when I really found out what happened to him. I was just shocked. I couldn't believe it. What was the secret that Lily's dad had been keeping from her and why? Who was Joaquin really? And to answer that, you know the drill. We got to go back to way before Lily was born. Joaquin Varela was born in Mexico in the early 1960s and grew up in the town of Guerrero. Around the late 1970s, he moved to the U.S. and ended up in Chicago when he was 17 years old. My dad is the oldest of six. My dad was the first one to come to the United States, the first one to cross over. My dad didn't have any of his siblings here. He didn't have my grandmother here, his father. He didn't have anyone. It was just him. Joaquin's entire nuclear family remained in Mexico, but in Chicago, he was surrounded by distant family and friends because lots of immigrants from Guerrero called the northwest side of neighborhood home. Joaquin bought himself a Chevy, and he loved driving around his older cousins who he idolized, Gilberto and Ramiro Varela. At their urging, Joaquin also bought a pistol in case he ever needed to protect himself. Right, so this brings us to the evening of Thanksgiving in 1981, when Joaquin got a call from his cousin Gilberto, who asked him to pick he and cousin Ramiro up and give them a ride somewhere. Gilberto called my dad and he asked him, hey, can you do me a favor? I have something to take care of. And he left it at that. And my dad being at the age he was at, he was like, oh, my cousin would never like put me in a bad situation. So that's what he did. Joaquin picked them up and dropped them off at the apartment building at 2121 North Milwaukee Avenue. He then parked further up the street and waited for them. But then, out of nowhere, gunshots started ringing out. Panicking that somebody was shooting at him, Joaquin returned the fire, sending two shots from his pistol into the air to scare off whoever might be after him. 
I believe he heard shots being fired and my dad thought the shots were being fired at him. So my dad immediately grabbed the gun and he shot the opposite direction of the crime scene because he heard it from the other direction because he was scared. He didn't know what was going on. He was like a, a kid, you know, just trying to protect himself in a foreign country. Somehow, amongst the commotion, Joaquin fled the scene and made it home okay. But he had no idea what happened to his cousins or what happened at all. There were so many questions. Who was firing at whom? Was anyone actually shot? Joaquin didn't know anything. But soon, details of what transpired that day emerged. And it turned out that four people had lost their lives that day amidst the gunfire. According to the police narrative published in the newspapers, the motivation for these killings was revenge. So brace yourselves and pay attention because we have a salacious story that fueled this rivalry. So back in Mexico, there had been a long-standing feud between two notable families, the Sanchez family and the Varela family. Investigators described this feud between families resembling that of Romeo and Juliet. These two families hated each other, and this hatred dated back decades in Mexico and now has followed them to the United States. I guess it goes all the way back to when everybody was still in Mexico, there was some drama that went on with somebody marrying somebody. Those Sanchez's, they've always had it out for us and we've always had it out for them. It just became this like mess out here that just like exploded and ended like this. The four victims were all undocumented workers and all except one were also members of the Sanchez family. The victims included 20-year-old Valente Galindo, his 30-year-old brother-in-law Ramon Sanchez and his brothers, 31-year-old Arnulfo, and 27-year-old Heladario. Two other men, Rogelio Medina and Liencio Cazado, were also injured during the exchange of gunfire, but they survived. The two surviving victims were able to shed light on what happened that day. The victims were hanging out and drinking at an apartment on Milwaukee Avenue, and eventually the group left and walked down the stairwell of this building. And it was there that they were ambushed by a group of men who opened fire on them. One of them died where he fell in the doorway of the building. Another lay dead on the staircase. And the third victim died on the stairwell vestibule. Another succumbed to his injuries outside on the street. And we know that at least 15 shots were fired during the attack with the 25 and 38 caliber firearms, which police eventually recovered. It was Chicago's worst mass slaying since 1977. And in the days that followed, the police investigated the murder of these men. And this investigation led to the arrest of a handful of suspects, including Lily's dad, Joaquin, his 42-year-old cousin, Ignacio, his 25-year-old cousin, Rugilio, and his 28-year-old cousin, Iswaro. So you're probably wondering why the police would have zeroed in on Joaquin and his family members as the culprits. Well, one of the surviving victims had identified this group of men as the people responsible. You know, I've got a lot of redeeming qualities. I'm pretty good at some things, but something that I really, really suck at is cooking. I suck at cooking, but HelloFresh makes me feel like I'm an actual chef and I kind of love it. So if you want to skip the grocery store and take control of your time and budget with delicious restaurant quality recipes delivered right to your door, you need to check out HelloFresh. So if you're looking for an easy way to eat well and save money this year, HelloFresh is a great place to get started. It's cheaper than grocery store shopping and 25% cheaper than takeout. And with over 35 weekly recipes, they have some options that you're looking for to help you achieve your goals. You can choose calorie smart or carb smart recipes, or even customize select meals by swapping proteins or sides, upgrading your proteins or adding protein to a veggie dish. Jared and I love using HelloFresh because we can kind of make this really cute date night and drink some wine and it's super, super fun. So go to hellofresh.com slash first 21 and use code first 21 for 21 free meals plus free shipping. That's hellofresh.com 
HelloFresh.com slash first21 with code first21 for 21 free meals plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French. And it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten. And I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on The First Degree, and when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV, and that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com first. Thrivemarket.com first. Fuel up fast with Factors restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything, except heat it up. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. And 
In the days following the massacre on Milwaukee Avenue that left four men dead, Joaquin and three other men, who were his cousins, were arrested for the murders. In three days after the killings, the four suspects were charged with four counts of murder and two counts of aggravated battery. They were all denied bond in order to stay in jail. After being arrested, the suspects all swiftly gave signed confessions to investigators. Joaquin would ultimately sign an affidavit admitting to firing his weapon in the direction of the apartment building. All four men went to trial and were found guilty as charged, and they were thrown into American prisons, sentenced to life without parole. So this is the desired outcome, right? Order has been restored from chaos. Everything had been adjudicated and tied up in this neat little bow. But there was one problem. Joaquin didn't do it. Actually, none of them did. To unravel the real truth of what happened, we're going to go back one more time. So following the rewind, and we're bringing you back to that fateful evening of Thanksgiving in 1981, we told you what the victims were doing. They were all hanging out at the Milwaukee Avenue apartment, partying, where the massacre occurred. So let's talk about the saga that put these senseless murders into motion. So it was a phone call that was made to Joaquin's cousin, Gilberto. And the person who called Gilberto was his uncle, Saul. And Saul was pissed because he believed his wife was cheating on him with a member of the rival Sanchez family. And it just so happened that Saul lived in the same building where all of these guys were partying on Milwaukee Avenue. So he called his nephew Gilberto and he's like, hey man, I need you to come over here and back me up. And Gilberto calls Joaquin and says, bro, come pick me and cousins up. We're going over to Saul's. So I know that's a lot of names, but that's how Joaquin and his cousins ended up over there. Gilberto is the one who put this entire thing into motion. And Joaquin did as Gilberto asked, and he picked them all up and drove them over to Saul's. He dropped them off and parked the car up the street. Joaquin didn't know why he was at the building that day. He didn't know what Gilberto's plan was. He just was doing as he was told. So Lily has her own theory about why Gilberto had Joaquin drive him to the scene. To this day, I have my own personal views on that, and I believe my father has his own. Mine would be... I. 100% think he set my dad up. I think he was just trying to put my dad at the place at the scene of the crime. He had it planned out. I believe that he wanted someone else to take the blame because just the way the whole situation played out, I mean, to me, it, just, it feels that way. As Joaquin sat in the car up the street, the cousins and their uncle Saul ambushed the victims. Joaquin heard gunshots and he fired his pistol when he was scared. And for the record, Joaquin did not shoot anyone. He fired his gun in the opposite direction of the crime scene. And then after the shooting, Gilberto and his uncles, who were the real culprits, fled from the Chicago area within a matter of hours and headed to Mexico. The next day, Joaquin and the other three suspects were arrested. So despite not even speaking English, they were each convicted in 1982 and put behind bars for life. And at their initial court appearance, it was reported that they all looked confused. And yeah, no shit. If you don't know what people are saying, yeah. they didn't bring them a, a translator, nothing. Yeah, I think they were probably confused. Yeah. He was in a room with cops yelling at him in a language he didn't even know yet. It was pretty brutal. They didn't respect him as a person or as a human being, and they didn't even read him his Miranda rights. Never brought in a translator, never offered a lawyer, nothing. And they told my dad he wouldn't ever see the outside until he signed a, a document admitting that he did it. Joaquin didn't speak English, like we said, and he had just arrived in America. All of these guys signed confessions that they didn't understand. And that was my dad's worst mistake, because after he signed that, he put himself at the scene. He incriminated himself. 
and they did the same thing to the other guys. All of them were tricked into admitting to committing this crime without them even knowing that they, that's what they were doing. He was just simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. He wasn't even here for a year until he got locked up. He didn't speak the language. He didn't understand the way the system worked. But he got dragged into a situation that he should have never been involved in in the first place. As much as we'd like to think experiences like this are an anomaly, it's a sad reality that the situation was and continues to be a typical one. It's important for me to be able to say this and for people to know that this might have happened so many years ago, but it continues to happen today and it's going to continue to happen. We were all immigrants. We had nothing. We didn't have the money. We didn't have the resources to fight it as much as someone else would have. And it begs the broader question. How many people in this community have suffered similar injustices? Immigration status, racial profiling, economic status, coercive and intimidating interrogation tactics, and language barriers all play a massive role in these wrongful convictions. According to the Innocence Project, innocent Hispanic immigrants are more vulnerable to pleading guilty to crimes that they haven't committed purely because the ramifications include deportation. Even if a conviction is overturned, there's no guarantee that deportation is not going to occur. And although the situation seemed hopeless, Joaquin wasn't going to give up. He wanted his freedom and he wanted out of prison. So he learned English while he was behind bars. His family did everything that they could to help as well, writing to media outlets in both the U.S. and Mexico in an effort to bring attention to the case. My uncle Alfonso crossed over and came to support my dad in whatever he needed, whether it be lawyers, money, getting the word out, whatever it could be. And family members started coming in to help my dad because he was alone. It's very hard for him to talk about being in prison with me because he always tells me what I lived throughout in prison, I like to put in the back of my head and never forget what happened, but I don't like to live it again. So it's very hard to hear him talk about it sometimes. The families of the accused continue to travel from Mexico, begging for the Mexican Consul General in Chicago to help them. And this is kind of an example demonstrating that the squeaky wheel does in fact get the grease, because in 1985, the Consul General retained an immigration lawyer by the name of Gary Adair to independently investigate what had happened. And as he poured over the files, he realized pretty quickly that these guys were in fact innocent. And this lawyer was able to confirm that it was Joaquin's cousin Gilberto who had masterminded this entire massacre. So Gary, the lawyer, focused on trying to track Gilberto down. Meanwhile, the case started picking up momentum in the media, which attracted the attention of an activist named Margot DeLay. Margot was the coordinator of a Mexican activist organization, and she used the reach of her organization to drive additional publicity to the case. This lady, her name is Margot DeLay. She was involved in fighting for, you know, rights for immigrants and all that stuff. And she caught wind of my dad's case. Soon, Margot was contacted by a man identifying himself as Gilberto. Yeah, the Gilberto, the real shooter who is still hiding out in Mexico. And get this, he admitted to committing the crime and confirmed that his imprisoned cousins were innocent and hadn't even been present at the scene on the day of the massacre. She was the one who actually received the collect call from Alberto admitting to everything and admitting to the crime and all that stuff. Everyone else had kind of just almost given up because it was getting one to the 10 year mark and two, it felt like a battle that we were never able to win. But thanks to Margot, she started the process, started the fight, got the evidence, the confession from Alberto when he called her. She was able to take it up against the state and tell them like, you know, something's wrong here. 
As the media attention continued to escalate, the discussion of the case gained traction in Chicago's Hispanic community, and tips came pouring in. Witnesses who had initially refused to speak to investigators because they were undocumented workers who were fearful of deportation now felt more empowered to come forward. A lot of people saw who did it, but a lot of people didn't talk because they feared deportation. They feared getting involved would mean that they would come after them. The fear was bigger than them knowing that that was not right. So the fear kept them quiet. Aspects of the case were then reinvestigated, and Gilberto was tracked down in Mexico. By the way, Mexico was not going to send Gilberto back to the U.S. to face charges because Illinois still had the death penalty at the time. Mexico would only extradite suspects to states that didn't use capital punishment. So Gilberto was kind of untouchable down in Mexico. So he openly confessed to being the real shooter when a U.S. investigator tracked him down there physically. He even signed an affidavit implicating himself. So the question is, would Gilberto's confession be enough to free Joaquin and his innocent cousins? Not exactly, but it was enough for the then-Illinois governor, James Thompson, to order the Illinois State Police to conduct a formal reinvestigation. All the evidence was looked at one more time. The bullets that my dad shot from his gun did not match the bullets in the bodies. A lot of things that didn't match up, a lot of evidence that was just kind of like brushed under the rug, they started looking into the paperwork that they, they had everyone sign, like the confession, how it just didn't make sense. There truly is nothing worse than itchy skin and especially an itchy scalp and especially if you have psoriasis. So if you're dealing with an itchy scalp, itchy skin or psoriasis, you need to check out Ocean Soothe, which is a natural solution that relieves psoriasis and problematic skin and scalp conditions. So it's sourced in Australia and manufactured here in the USA. Ocean Soothe products deliver relief to the areas where you really need it most and they offer a head to toe solution so you don't need to put together this whole crazy cocktail of products to treat your skin and find relief. So the Ocean Ocean Soothe Gel and Lotion are recognized by the Natural Psoriasis Foundation, so you know that they're good to relieve psoriasis and can be used across your whole body. They're naturally made, so you don't have to experience any crazy side effects, and they're odorless, which I love because I hate a scent. It always makes me feel extra itchy. So if you want to check them out, Abundance Natural Health Ocean Soothe products are available now at CVS Health Hub stores. Head over and shop today and get your hands on some Ocean Soothe. So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Aloe Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Aloe Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Aloe Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to Aloe Moves com and use code FIRST for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code FIRST, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code FIRST. As the Milwaukee massacre murders were reinvestigated, three new witnesses were uncovered. All these eyewitnesses confirmed who the real killers were. 
Activists like Margot DeLay kept media attention on the case and the cause. And by this point, Joaquin and his cousins had been in prison for nearly eight years, but they never gave up on their freedom. Margot started that movement, so thanks to her just being so consistent and being so determined to get my father out, she really sparked a movement within this whole, like, this whole mess that nobody could do for like 10 years. Everyone in my family tried and we couldn't do anything. And it's crazy how she did all this in like a matter of months. Like she was able to get this investigation launched. Given the outcome of the reinvestigation, in January of 1991, Governor Thompson commuted the men's sentences to time served and they were released. So this is a pretty huge victory. By this point, Joaquin is now around 30 years old. Upon his release, he told the Chicago Tribune, the air, the liberty, it's pretty to be outside. I always had faith I would get out. But let's be real. This isn't exactly justice because while Joaquin was released, he wasn't exonerated. They were released and basically just tossed out with zero support. Joaquin and the other men were issued temporary work permits, but they still potentially faced deportation. They were free, but couldn't leave the country to even see their extended families because they were technically still considered criminals. When you give somebody time served, you're not saying that they didn't do it. That was the biggest slap in the face. My dad got out with a carton of cigarettes and an old pair of clothes, and that was it. That's all he had. Thankfully, he had family to support him and to help him get through those hard times. And to make things worse, the wrongful conviction case was being politically exploited. It was around the time that the, another governor was going to try to come into office. My dad told me, he's like, he kept telling the community, I'm going to fully pardon these men. And I'm going to get them their life back on track. Not only did they not believe my dad was innocent, but they also used him as a pawn to get a campaign going. That is like the most disrespectful thing that I think they could have done to us. So this candidate, Jim Edgar, he promised to pardon Joaquin and his cousins if he were elected. He basically ran his campaign on this. And he was elected and he followed through on his promise eight months later when he was made governor. But there was a catch and it was a pretty shitty one. The now freed men had to sign a document agreeing not to sue the state over the mishandling of their cases and their wrongful convictions. And that's really messed up because we hear these news stories all the time about people who are wrongfully incarcerated and they sue and they have money then to give them the support they need. Like, and I'm talking live psych- life. In therapy, like imagine the trauma of all of this. Yeah. And, you know, these guys were basically just tossed out. But at the time, Joaquin was so happy to be pardoned that he didn't think twice about signing this agreement. Right. So at no stage did Joaquin receive any sort of post-release assistance of any value whatsoever to help him reintegrate back into the community. There was zero therapy, no help, no financial compensation for taking the best years of these guys' lives away from them. There was nothing. And it's probably no surprise that once Lily learned all this, she was infuriated. That is the part that infuriates me the most. Everybody thinks that he's free. That's what you should be grateful for. Of course, I'm grateful that he's free. Of course, I'm happy that he's free. But at what cost? We were taken advantage of because they were undocumented. They never let his status go. They always brought up how he was undocumented. I still remember, I asked my dad, dad, why would you sign that paper? We could have sued, we could have done something, we could have made them pay. They don't realize that they took 10 years of my dad's life that he'll never get back. You have a green card and that's all you people want, so leave. But what they don't understand is that that's not gonna fix everything. Having a green card doesn't automatically fix all the problems in our, in our lives. 
So Joaquin got out of jail. He did his best to move on, and he never told anyone what happened to him. For years, he struggled with a complex combination of ongoing trauma, shame, and the psychological implications as a result of his whole experience. People don't see how this not only affected my father, this has affected my mother, my siblings. I mean, probably my grandmother at some point, you know, like it affected us as a whole. It wasn't just my father. And here we are 40 years out, still picking up the pieces, still trying to put it all back together. Who's going to make it up to me? You know, who's going to pick up the pieces that were left? I have to. There was a lot of points in our lives where we didn't have much. You know, we grew up with a little bit because it was just my mom taking care of us because my dad was not available for us. Nobody sees that part. Everybody just sees like he's freed and he's good and he got his green card, but nobody sees the aftermath of it. And that's the most frustrating part. As Lily was growing up, she knew that something was off with her dad. She knew he'd been in prison, but learned to never ask about it. And it's only when Lily started digging around on the internet that she learned the truth about what happened to her dad. And this was a big discovery for Lily. And it really helped her understand her dad's emotional shortcomings. He'd been betrayed by his cousin, labeled a mass murderer, wrongfully convicted, thrown in prison, released, and then given no help. And he'd kept all of this a secret from his family for decades. That would take a toll on anyone. Even after Lily and her dad reconnected and got their relationship back on track, it took a long time for him to open up to her and speak candidly about his experience. I really finally built up the courage to ask him about this because growing up it was a forbidden subject it was something we weren't allowed to ask him about anything that had to do with his past so now as an adult I was like you know what I can ask you these questions it's normal and he was surprisingly an open book about it and we really connected about it that's when I really was able to get down to it and find out like what really happened to him I can tell he was ashamed of it and he thought we were going to look at him differently and we were going to think he was some kind of monster my dad is the most amazing father I could have ever asked for. I can't even begin to explain how much I love him. Like, he is everything to me. He is my biggest supporter. I'm so grateful that we were able to work through this. And now he's there for us. We don't hold resentment towards him. We don't hate him. We think he's the best thing ever. I actually mentioned this to him the podcast to him. I thought he was going to be like, oh my God, Lily, what are you getting me involved in? But he was actually very supportive. Arrest warrants remain outstanding for Gilberto and Romero Varela. And Lily told us that everyone in the family knows where Gilberto is. So where's the justice for the four individuals who were murdered in the Milwaukee massacre? Will there ever be any? It doesn't look like it. And that's a travesty. We know where Gilberto is. He's been in our family for many years and he's still around. He's not hiding. He's not trying to get away. He's a loose cannon. He's always been one to start fights, one to start drama, quick to pull a gun. Lily is still rightfully outraged about both the injustice her father experienced and what she continues to see happening to undocumented immigrants who aren't bilingual. People who simply want to come to the U.S. for a better life continue to be exploited and politicized. It's so heartbreaking that 40 years later, nothing's changed. We're not being seen as human beings. We're not being seen as somebody with a family, somebody with a future. They just see us as like a pawn. Lily is incensed her dad was put in a position where he could never receive any compensation for the injustice that he faced. The document Joaquin signed effectively allowed Chicago PD and the state government to wash their hands of the entire situation. And it is fucked up. I've been trying since... I can remember, and it's just so hard because I don't have a platform to speak on, and it's so hard to get attention from, like, the right people. And I would like to know if there is something I can do to 
to to make this right. I contacted Chicago Police Department and I sent them a FOIA request and they keep giving me the runaround. They're like, we don't have it. It's lost. I don't know where it's at. I've been battling with them for like two years now. And I have gotten nowhere. I hope maybe somebody will listen to this and and will say, you know what, I want to help them. So when I interviewed Lily, we talked about maybe getting her father, Joaquin, to come on the podcast and share some, you know, of his thoughts himself, since this is his story. And we were lucky enough to make that work. The quality of the call isn't awesome because he was in Mexico and we had a three-way call. But we're going to have Lily explain um, really what he what he feels now. Uh, he was a delight to talk to, and Lily, so were you, obviously. And yeah, we're excited that we were able to include Joaquin in this episode. So here you go. So I asked him the question you had brought up right now, which is like how he felt about the pardon, like all that stuff. He touched on how he, in that moment, he had to make a decision that, you know, was going to affect his whole life. You know, either he stays, he doesn't sign and he stays a felon and living life as a felon is not the easiest. So I guess like he just touched on that and like the possibility of going back into um, back to prison and why he made the decision he made and how he felt about it and how um, and how it was a, a really hard decision to make because, you know, he had to kind of give up his compensation at that point by signing that document. I'm going to try to ask him right now what he wishes like would come from this, you know. Well, una de las cosas que a uno le gustaría que haya menos injusticia so he basically, I asked him, like, what he wished, like, what he would want an outcome from this. And he basically touched on, you know, for people to know that injustices in the United States are, are real and they happen every day. And we, so most of them go unnoticed. Um, on top of that, you know, he also touched on, like, how he wishes, like, he can't ever get the time they took away from him. But he, he, like, they can't give him his time back. He's never going to get those 10 years that he spent there or nine and a half years he spent in there. He'll never get that time back, but they could have done more for him. They could have done something else. You know, he could have, he should have been entitled to something, you know, because that, that, what happened to him was like crazy. And it's like, you know, I feel like they're so quick to charge someone else for their mistakes. But when it comes to the system, when the system makes, has a flaw or the system has a mistake, they just kind of brush it under the rug and let's forget about it and act like it never happened without thinking of like all the consequences that occurred because of that. We never know what secrets that people around us could be burdened with, and we don't know what kind of trauma could be in anyone's past unless they decide to share it. Sometimes the pain and trauma is too unbearable to lift the lid on, especially when you fear the judgment of others and your loved ones abandoning you. In this case, a breathtaking level of police incompetence fueled by systemic racism led to an outcome that robbed so many people of justice. The four men murdered during the massacre, the four wrongfully convicted men, and the real killers who never had to pay for their crimes. Lily now knows the truth about her father, although she still grapples with the ideas of what could have been and wonders about the life her father could have had if he'd never fallen victim to our criminal justice system. Thank you so much for Lily for telling her story. Uh, if you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. No story is too small or too insignificant. So please just email us if you, you know, have the little hunch. Yes. You can follow us on Instagram, uh, join our Facebook group, join our Patreon. There's lots of good content for you over there and come around tomorrow because we're going to have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed.
And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are the National Registry of Exonerations, the Chicago Tribune, Chicago Magazine, United Press International, The Innocence Project, the UCLA Law Review, the Prison Policy Initiative, the Blum Legal Clinic, ForJustice.org, the Pew Research Center, the Associated Press, the Los Angeles Times, the Pantograph, the Daily Times Press, and the Daily Dispatch. And as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source.